All right, we're in First Peter chapter five this morning. We're going to going to finish out our study in in First Peter. We began this series back in February. My plan was that it would be a spring series, and we would finish early in June. Oops. Uh, uh, so so it goes. Um, you know, it, it's always it, it brings mixed feelings coming to the end of a preaching series, going through another book of the Bible, and and now I, I was thinking about it. I can think back on not on every every book that we've been to, but I can think back on certain ones, and certainly First Peter is going to be one of those where I can think what was happening in our church and what was happening in my own life, and there are these connections that I had no idea that the Lord would bring about. And and I and I think I've talked with some of you, and you've you've seen the same thing. So I'm thankful for the Lord's ministry through His Spirit, using His Word to to minister to our church during this kind of season in our church. And I'm grateful for what He's done. First Peter is not. We were in the Gospel of John prior to First Peter, and John, as you've asked people, what's my favorite book in the Bible? You know, seven out of ten people will probably say John. Uh, and First Peter, I don't know that anybody would say. I, I don't know that anybody's like, man, that's my favorite book of the of the Bible. And and uh, obviously, we know we are firmly of the conviction all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, and it's good, and it's His Word, and we want to treasure it. But it's been it's been a, even a surprise to me how much my own soul has found delight in this letter, in this portion of God's Word, and how He's used it in my own heart, and I trust that He has in yours. Now, what's coming next in terms of preaching? We have a little bit of a smorgasbord over the next uh, several weeks uh, in in the pulpit. Uh, Eric's going to be preaching next Sunday on his birthday, and so make sure you make a big to-do about that. Uh, I'll be absent next Sunday. We'll be gone. Um, so Eric's going to be preaching from Judges next next Sunday. I'll be back after that to do a two-week series called Renewing Our Vows, just to, just to look at what it means to be part of a local church. And then uh, our men's retreat speaker, David Cleland, is going to preach the September 23rd. Then I'll do one little standalone message on the Trinity that I'm already preparing for and excited about. And then we will have a World Missions Conference. We take two Sundays in October, generally, to focus our attention on uh, cross-cultural missions, world missions. And so that will be happening those first two weeks in October. And then we're going to go right into Second Peter. And it's not going to be a six-month series. It's going to be a seven- or eight-week series this fall. I know I can hear your doubtful little snickers. Um, we're we're going to do this, and we're going to do it before we get to a, an Advent series. Uh, so that's kind of the plan, what's coming up. The theme of this letter, the title of this sermon series, the refrain that we've already been saying together this morning is that hope is alive. Hope is alive. That, 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 we've talked about this throughout the series. That has double meaning. It may, one, we're saying that the hope that we have is a living hope. That, 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 our, that even while we live in a world full of suffering and, and trouble and difficulties and even persecution, that we have this undying hope because Christ has risen from the dead and we will be with Him for eternity. So we have this living hope. But the other side of that is that this hope that we have, it lives It's lived out by us, that our lives are transformed and should reflect this hope that we have because of God's mercy. And we've seen both of those throughout this letter, and as we come to the conclusion of this letter, we see them again just woven together beautifully in these final verses of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter, as we've seen, that deals a lot with suffering. 
uh, suffering throughout, but, but not in a way that makes us uh, obsess over suffering. It, it's, it's assumed more than, it, than it's focused upon or dwelt upon. Peter is a, is a wise pastor. And, and he knows that when we're suffering, one of the worst things we can do is to just kind of meditate upon our suffering and just zero in on it and obsess over it. We're all wired to be wallowers. It's very natural for us. And, and so Peter wants his readers, he wants us to, to move beyond the pain, move beyond the rejection. He's not minimizing it or muting it or saying, ah, it's not so big deal, not a big deal, just quit whining, get over it. That's not it at all. It's real trouble, it's real hardship. But he wants us to move past that and to be taken up with the glory of God and what he's doing. That, that he wants us to be connected to something big and, and awesome and beautiful and glorious. And that's, that's, this, that's this hope that he's been putting before us throughout this letter. And he's drawing our hearts forward to the Lord and to what he's doing and to what, what promised to his people. And so we've seen this throughout. Are we there? Are you there, brothers and sisters? Are, is your heart drawn forward with hope in the Lord? That you are, in Christ, part of this big, glorious plan that He's accomplishing. How do, we, how do we press on together? In these final words of this letter, Peter's telling us, how do, how do we press on together with living hope when our lives remain full of troubles? It's not like by the time he gets into the end of the letter, you know, I know you're in trouble, I know we talked about how to deal with it, so, but now it's over and so next thing. No, they're still in the trouble. In fact, it's just going to get worse and worse for them, and they know it. So how do we how do we press on? How do we not just have a moment of living hope, where we have a little pep rally and, and sing you know songs, and we feel really good for a moment, and then we go on and we're back into despair? How do we endure with living hope? I think we have these directives, these final words of Peter that that help us, that help his original readers, and they help us. Let me. Let me give you six things, that, the six directives here that, that help us to press on together with living hope. The first is that we must know our place. We must know our place. And so, look, we, we saw this last week at the end of verse 5. The, verse 5 ends with, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6, Humble yourselves, Therefore, so he's connecting this right out of that we're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, and then he turns it vertically and says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, times of suffering, they, 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 they make the soil of our hearts fertile for pride to grow. I mean, our hearts are always fertile soil for pride, but, but particularly in times of suffering, it can, pride can show up in all kinds of different ways. There can be a real temptation in times of trouble to pl- try and place yourself and your situation at the center of the universe. That all that really matters right now is how I'm being affected. This is a temptation for us when we suffer. Or there can be a temptation to, to kind of give off the appearance of having it all together. We don't want to show any weakness. We don't, we don't want to give any impression that we need anything from any other people. Like, I've got to control this myself in times of suffering. That's a temptation that comes from pride. 
Or we can be tempted to become angry and bitter because we think we're getting this raw deal from God. I deserve better than this. I'm a a good person. And that's pride. Or we can be tempted to envy others because they have it easier than us. Again, it's rooted in pride. Or we can be tempted to try and manipulate circumstances and and relationships in our lives and and to try to make sure we get everything that we need or want. We think we need or want. These are all expressions of pride. And there are many others that we could list. But Peter says to these suffering sojourners, if you're going to if you're going to press on in living hope, you need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. <coughs> humble yourselves. What does that mean? To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. It means that, as I said, we, we know our place. We know our place. It means that we recognize that we're not at the center of the universe. God is. It's living, living humbly before the Lord is, is living the way we were made to live. It's living our full humanity, full humanity out the way God created us. This is, this is to be the most human we can be. This is, we, are, we are not created to be at the center. We are not made to be independent beings. We are made for worshipful dependence upon God. This is how God made us. So this is why I say we, we need to know our place, our proper place in, in times of suffering. Because again, that pride is swelling in us. So, so this humility before the Lord, it means a couple of things. One, it means that we trust God's wisdom more than our own. We trust His wisdom. We really believe that God's way is best. We really believe that whatever He calls us to, Whatever is going on in our life is wise, and it's good, and it's right. We really believe that God, who knows everything, He has told us all that we need to know to live the way He's called us to live in the midst of the broken, suffering-filled, God-opposing world that we live in. He's given us all we need to know. He knows. His wisdom is better. Do we trust God's wisdom more than our own? Or do we find ourselves regularly stepping outside of God's wisdom because there's something that we want or something that we think is better than His wisdom? So humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God, it's, it's saying, God, your, your wisdom is best. You're wise. I, I, I'm not. You're, I need your wisdom. I trust your wisdom more than I own. It also means resting in God's sovereignty. We rest in His sovereignty. We really believe that our lives are not out of control. They are out of our control. But but we embrace the truth that our loving Father, He rules over all things by His power and authority. So we we rest in that sovereignty. Humility is is recognizing that, that you and I, we never walk into a situation. We never walk into a relationship. We never walk into a difficulty or a circumstance that is outside of God's sovereign, good, and wise control. We rest in His sovereignty. We, we trust His wisdom more than our own. If we're going to press on together with living hope while, 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 we, while we suffer in a broken world, we must know our place. We must be humble, church. We must. If we are not humble, you just think of the consequences. If we're not humble, if we remain proud, if we refuse to... to, to, to to, to rest in the place that God has made us to be in, 
and we're proud before the Lord, then what do we do? We open the door to constant worry and fear and disappointment and conflict and discouragement and on and on. This is, this is what happens when we don't remain humble before the Lord. On the other side of that, there is blessing, brothers and sisters, when we humble ourselves together before the Lord. And do think in that way. I know, again, I say this, I feel like I've repeated this so many times in this series, but I, I can't say it enough, is when we read through these passages, don't just think in, an, in a very American way, this is about me and God. God and me, excuse me, grammarians. Um, this, is, this is about us. This is corporate. He's writing to these believers in community. He's saying, humble yourselves, plural, under the mighty hand of God. So we together, church, we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Why? So that, here's the purpose, at the proper time He may exalt you. The same mighty hand that we rest in, that He allows us to suffer, that same mighty hand will, at the proper time, lift us up. He will exalt us. At the proper time, according to His timetable, to His plan, the the time that God deems best. And it's not entirely clear whether this is in this life or the life to come, but He will lift us up. There is blessing that comes with knowing our place, with humbling ourselves before the Lord as a church, both now and for eternity. So... That's the first thing. How do we press on together with living hope that never dies in the, in the midst of suffering and when our lives are full of troubles, we, we know our place. Second directive is we must rest together in God's care. Rest in His care. And humility and rest are, are inseparable when you really begin to think about it. At the heart of anxiety is pride. It's, 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 it's this core belief that I, I'm going to try to handle things myself. And when I can't handle things myself, I'm still not going to turn to the Lord. It's just pride. You know, I'm saying nobody else can do this better than I can do this. But he says in verse 7, so we humble ourselves before the Lord. How does that look? Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The word anxieties, it comes from a word meaning to divide. So, so when we're anxious, we, we have divided hearts or divided, divided minds. I think experientially we, we understand this. This is, how, this is what it's like when we're, when we're filled with anxiety. Our, our thoughts are divided. Our attention is divided. Our, 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 <coughs> our, we can't concentrate on one thing. I mean, I confess that even this week, my own heart has been divided at times. I see these anxieties that are dividing my my mind. I've been tempted to hold on to worries and fears and anxieties and cares instead of cast them upon the Lord. So, so it's hard to, to focus, to give attention to, to, to what's before me. And so I, it's easy to just turn those things over and over in our mind. And so we have these scattered cares, divided thoughts. This is my own experience. And so here I've been studying this text and the Lord has been gracious to draw me back to it many times, but, but tempted to hold on to my anxieties and be divided as I'm looking at this passage. And so even, but here's the reality, even though it kind of mundane concerns, the normal concerns, doesn't have to be something major or catastrophic, but even the mundane concerns can, 
can have the the cumulative effect of just weighing on our souls. And we just get weighed with anxieties and cares and worries, and they can become consuming. This This is how worry tends to work. There's a quote that I'll put on the screen. It, and it, it, someone said, "Worry is a—it's a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained." What a great word picture! But, it, but this is this is how it often is for us. We starts with these little cares, and it just keeps working away. And then all before—that's all we can. It's all, our thoughts are consumed with anxieties. What are the things in in our lives that cause us to worry and to fear and to be anxious? And and what are the concerns we have? And have we, as an as an act of faith, uh, put those cares upon the Lord? What about us as a church? Are we casting our anxieties upon upon the Lord? To cast means that's a another great word picture. Casting. It's just it's not just to kind of set gently. It's to throw off with vigor. It's like you've been on a hike all day with this, you know, big pack and you, you've been hiking the Appalachian Trail and you, you know, you're day 30 into this thing and your legs are tired and you've been going, going hard all day long and steep, you know, elevations and, and at the end of the day you finally are able to get to your campsite and you, you take that pack off and you throw that thing down. This is a burden that you are, are glad to get rid of. That's the, that's the idea here. This is what we're to, we're to do with our words. We're to unload them on the Lord. Why? Why do we do this? Look at the text again. Because He, the Lord, cares for us. He cares for us. What an awesome thing! What a miracle of grace that, that the Holy God, the Lord Almighty, He, he cares for us. He really does. And He invites us to cast our anxieties, our cares upon Him during times of suffering, brothers and sisters. We're, we're prone to forget two things generally. We, we're prone to forget God's power and God's care. We, we ask questions like, where is God in all of this? We, we suspect that maybe He's not on the throne after all. We doubt His power. Or we ask, why is He allowing this to happen? We question His love, His kindness, His care. Peter says, no, we must humble ourselves before God's mighty hand. He is in control. He is on His throne. And and, and He he hasn't been caught off guard. He's not asleep at the wheel. Where, Where is your God when the people taunt us? Where is your God? We say our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Whatever he does is right. So, so Peter affirms God's power and then he answers the second doubt that often surfaces in times of trouble. It's that we doubt his care and so we must affirm his loving care. He cares for us. He cares for us in community. He cares for us personally. He, in spite of how it may feel or seem in the times of trouble, he cares for us. Do you believe the Lord really cares for you? Is this a doubt that you have? Do you believe He cares about your concerns? Cares about your responsibilities? Cares about your opportunities? Cares about your heartaches? Cares about your circumstances? 
cares about your relationships, that He cares about your temptations, cares about your guilt, cares about your weaknesses, cares about your conflicts, cares about your losses. Our Lord cares for us. He cares for us. He cares for you. But do we, do we doubt that care of our Lord at times? We sure do. And what, do we, what, what more must He do to show us that He cares? I don't remember the lyric we sang earlier, but we had a song that asked this question and basically answered it. And what is the answer that we sang earlier? Jesus has proved it by sending His own, or God has proved it by sending His own Son to die on the cross for us. The, 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 the issue was settled for all time at the cross. You want to, if, you, if you question, if you doubt, begin to doubt God's care, you go back to Calvary. You say, alright, there's, there's no doubt here at all. It's clear. So we must, we must learn to rest in God's care, even, even when our lives are full of troubles and concerns. I, I'm convinced that the dark little secret of the church is, is how much fear and anxiety controls us. This worry that paralyzes us and discourages us and robs us of courage, robs us of joy, robs us of, of, of hope. It, it, it mutes our usefulness to the Lord even. We're divided people. We're anxious people. And, and, and our Lord, he, he comes to us through Peter and He doesn't just say to us, Stop worrying! No, he, he, our need is to look to the Lord. He doesn't just say, you know, we're, we're just to cast our anxieties away. Just throw them off on the ground like the, like, the, like the pack. No, that's not what he says. We cast them on the Lord. Don't miss a little prepositional phrase. This isn't just self-help. We just, we just need to throw off worry and be hopeful. No, we, we have real anxieties and we place those upon the Lord because He personally and directly and eternally cares for us. It's a very personal interaction that we're talking about here with the Lord. So how do we press on, brothers and sisters, with, with living hope? So this isn't just a little flash in the pan for us, but this is something that endures in our lives even when we're full of troubles. And even though troubles may mount in greater ways than we even could anticipate or possibly expect, first thing, we've got to know our place. We've got to be humble before the Lord. Second, we rest in God's care and third, we must take life seriously. We must take life seriously. And so he says, Peter tells us to, to rest here, casting our anxieties upon the Lord. And, and, and then he says, verse 8, wake up! Be on the alert! So it sounds like, okay, which one is it? Do we rest or do we, are we alert? He says, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Sober-minded, be watchful. What, what's one of the biggest idolatries we have in our culture? There are many, but one of them would certainly be pleasure, amusement. We, we live in a, in a very silly society that doesn't take life very seriously. Thank you, YouTube, and all the little funny videos. In our, in our pursuit of pleasure and entertainment, we spend, we spend gobs of money on things that really make no difference whatsoever in the world. 
In our pursuit of pleasure and amusement, we, we make dumb decisions that, that just rack us with enormous debt. We allow ourselves to be controlled by physical things until we become addicted to them. We, we eat ourselves to poor health. We neglect the most important things in our life. I mean, Western culture, it's a, it's a picture of a society that's not taking life seriously. And so the, the culture in which Peter's original readers uh, lived, it, it, was so, it was very different from ours in many ways, but there was this common denominator of, of hedonism, of just, of, 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 of just grasping pleasure and the pursuit of, of amusement and pleasure. And to, to, to these believers in the midst of that culture, like we live, he says, be on the alert, pay attention, think about what you're seeing around you. So he says, be sober-minded. Be, I just, just be careful what, the way you think. It's, if, if, it's thinking about life from the vantage point of God's wisdom, as it's revealed for us in Scripture. It's, it's, it's that we have this biblically informed belief system that, that is the lens through which we view everything in life. Be, be sober-minded. Think your way through life. Don't just bounce along. And then he says, be watchful or alert. Watchful for what? Watchful because look at the text. Our adversary, the the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we've we've got to take life seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. That's pride where we are just so full of ourselves and and that kind of thing. That's not it. But we, we take life seriously because the stakes are high. We believe in the reality of evil. We believe in a personal devil. We believe that there really is a spiritual enemy who's out to divide us and to, and to deceive us and to destroy us and to, to ultimately devour us. We believe that. So we're sober-minded and we're, we're watchful. Um, you know, you've seen, no doubt, the National Geographic shows or, or the YouTube videos of these lions and, and uh, lions prowling around. You have this pride of lions. You've got the dominant male lion who's out there always prowling around looking for the next meal, that kind of thing. So that's, that's the image. This was, again, kind of a remote idea, something we have to see on TV, but this was something that they, they understood. So he's there and he's stalking that herd of wildebeest or whatever it is. And, and what, is, what do they often do? They, they, they look and they're, they're observant to know the one that's limping or the one that's got you know a wound that's still bleeding or something like that. And they... They, they go and they pick that one off, looking for weakness in, in his prey. And that's our enemy. He's, he's, he's looking. He's prowling around. He's looking for those places in our lives where we're susceptible to temptation. He's looking for where we, we're making unwise decisions. He's looking for where we're exposing to ourselves to things we shouldn't be exposed to. He's looking for where we're living unwisely. So what? We must be watchful. We must be watchful. Many times we can be oblivious to spiritual danger. And, and so we're, we're vulnerable to the devil's attacks. And I mean, I've, said, I've used this illustration before, but if a real lion were loose along Corinth Road this morning, if, if we got a, you know, alerts on our cell phone, there's a lion loose. It was last seen at, at uh, 296 Corinth Road right next to us in this blue house over here. 
and uh, it got out of the Flintoff's cage or something like that. And and so if we knew there was a real lie in the loose one, we wouldn't just be kind of, you know, picking flowers on the way to the car and, uh, you know, looking up at the sky and staring about it and drinking our coffee, talking. No, we would be, before we walked out that back door to Fellowship Town, we'd be checking both ways and looking at security cameras and seeing if we can see this thing. All right, and then we'd dart across. That's the, that's the picture. We, we've got to be on high alert. There's this roaring lion that's seeking to devour us, church. He's, he's after us. There's a real enemy, and so we, we must be sober-minded. We must be watchful. We must take life seriously. But it's more than that. It's, it's more than just being alert to the danger, to, the, to, to this danger, to the devil. We must, next, we, we must resist him. We must resist him. And so we must resist the enemy of our souls. Your, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is a very interesting verse, I think, and I've been thinking a lot about this this week. Because resisting the devil here is put in the context of suffering. We, we all know, I think, though, that times of suffering are, are often times of, of moral and spiritual vulnerability for us. We're suff- when we're suffering, we're, we're tempted to get angry in ways we may not otherwise. When, we, when we're suffering, we're tempted to doubt God. We're, we're tempted to envy other people. We're tempted to question the things we believe. We're tempted to be irritable and unkind and unloving towards brothers and sisters. Sisters in Christ, we're, we're tempted to be proud of wanting the whole world to revolve around us and our situation. In times of trouble, we're, we're especially vulnerable to the attacks of our enemy. And so we must be alert, we must be watchful, and we must resist these attacks. I know when we think about the devil, I think there's kind of two extremes that Christians often go to. There are, there are believers who, who see the devil... Everywhere, <laughs> behind every bush, he's there, and so they're casting out, you know, the demons of whatever, you know, if they have the sniffles that morning, or if they stub their toe, or if they kick the cat in anger, it's, it's this demon made me do this, or something like that. And the devil's after me. The, 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 the devil is blamed for all problems, even those that come as a result of our own sin, or just our weakness, even. And so that's one extreme. The other extreme, though, I think is maybe more common. We just ignore them altogether. And so we kind of play down passages like this. And Okay, that's a, that's a very primitive way of thinking, but we're, we're, we'll go on. No, but that's not it. Satan is a real powerful enemy. He, he, he's, he's not like God, but bad or evil. That's not it. He's not, he's not, he's not on equal of God's in any way. He's not like the dark side or something like that. No, he, he's not omnipotent. He's not, he's not uh, omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. That's not it. But he, he's, he's very active, but he is limited. But he is an enemy. He's a defeated enemy, but he's an enemy. I mean, the cross spelled his doom. The resurrection sealed it. But he's still at work. He's still, he's still active. He's still prowling. And so, yet, yet his, his doom is sure. So, so we can resist him. Peter says, firm in our faith, and, and as, as James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee for you. We can be confident that he will flee. And so he says, resist him, firm in our faith. That's not like self-confident. 
I'm firm in my faith. I'm very confident in my, the power of my belief in Jesus or something like that. It's not focused on me and how much faith I have. The focus is on the object of our faith. It's that I am confident in Christ. He, is, he, is, he looms so large in my life and in my heart and in, in my vision. That's the idea of being firm in our faith. And, and so, firm in our faith, we can resist Him. Resist Him the enemy of our souls, as, as he calls him here, the adversary, the, the devil. Adversary is it's a, it's an opponent in a lawsuit. That's the idea of that basic word. And, and, the, and, the, and the devil, is, it's a, he's a slanderer, the accuser. He's described in Revelation 12.10 as, as the accuser of our brothers. And so he has all kinds of tactics that we need to be mindful of. Our, one of his favorite tactics is to come after us in times of intense trial and suffering and trouble. And, and he suggests to us either, one, we've talked about this already, that God isn't strong enough to help you or that he doesn't really care. So we've got to resist him. We know, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We, we know the Lord cares for us and so we cast our anxieties. That's resisting him. Another common strategy is to, to accuse our consciences when we've sinned. Even if we've confessed that sin to the Lord, He comes and He, and he whispers to us, What kind of Christian are you? You think the Lord's going to forgive you for that? You've you, you got to clean yourself up before you go back to God. What do we do? We res- that's the accuser. It's a slanderer. We resist Him. Sometimes He wants us to think that we're the only ones in the world going through whatever difficulty it is that, that's in front of us. Your hardship is unique. No one else understands. No one else is suffering like you. Somehow, some way, everybody else's life is easy and, 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 and you've been singled out for suffering. And this is what he, he answers this in the context. And so when, when the devil whispers, where's God now? Why isn't he loving you like he loves everybody else? Why, is, why isn't he being faithful to you like he's being faithful to others? Where's the grace that He's giving to everyone else? Why aren't you experiencing it? Peter says, you're not alone. This is a great response. Your Christian brothers throughout the world are experiencing similar trials. You're not alone. There's this identification. You have brothers and sisters throughout the world who are sharing in Christ's sufferings with you. And there's a comfort there. That's a part of resisting the devil. Because that's some of his murmurings to us. We haven't been singled out for suffering. We are experiencing that which all God's children experience. We suffer together. And so we must resist him. We must resist. That, even that word, resist, it's a, it's a defensive posture. We're not to go out like lion hunters, you know, looking for the devil and, and to offensively attack. That's not, the, that's not it. We're, 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 as he stalks us, as he roars against us, as he accuses us, we must stand firm in the full armor of God and resist him. And he will flee. So especially when we're walking through trials, but all times, we, we need to be on the alert Sober-minded, watchful, and resisting the enemy. Fifth, two more. How do we, how do we press on together with living hope when our lives are full of, of troubles? Fifth directive is this, is we must trust God for our stability. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself... Restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does He say to us? He says, Our Lord will never turn from His grace towards us. Our suffering and trouble will not stop. They won't keep His transforming work from taking effect in our lives. He will finish the work. He Himself, I love that language, Christ Himself will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. His grace is sure. And He will not relent until the work is completely done in all of His children. So we're not, we're not to trust in ourselves during, uh, trust in ourselves to be stable during trials. Like, I, I got what it takes. I can do this. I, I've got this. That's not it. We trust in God who gives stability to us in Jesus Christ. That's what He's calling on us here. I, I realize trusting God has fallen on hard times in many Christian circles. It's not, it's not really in vogue to talk like this. We, we want something to do. We want advice. We want uh, practical things. That's kind of theoretical. That's pie in the sky, trusting God. We, we just tell me, tell me what to do. It's, it's, and, 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 and yet here, brothers and sisters, we, it, the reason we, we are inclined to go that way is because we've lost sight of the Lord and who He is and what He's like and what He's called us to. And so he says, trust, you've got to trust God to give you stability in times of trials. How, how can we trust God uh, when it's hard and we're in, the middle of, when we're in the middle of troubles like this? Let me just give you a few things. And, and the first thing is this, is we put the trial in perspective. Put the trial in perspective. There, Pastor Dow passed on an article to me this week, and it was in World Magazine, and, and it's called Waiting Gains. It was a good, good little title, Andre Sue Peterson. But this is, let me just, a, a little quote that gives you kind of the context. He says, she says, the trouble with trials God sends into our lives is that he never tells us in advance how long they're going to last. Don't you know that from your own experience? I mean, oftentimes, sometimes it's the intensity of a trial that makes it so hard, it's just... I mean, you just are blindsided, and it's the surprise of it, and it's the gravity of the trial, and, you know, some sudden catastrophic death or something like that. But other times, it's the duration of it that's so painful. There's no end in sight. It's just so long, and the pain just keeps going, and there's no prospect of this ending. And so that's one of the, the hardest things about trouble is, is that duration. And what does Peter say? He says, your suffering will only last a little while. A little while. He's not flattering them or giving them empty promises like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And he's like, it's not going to be fine. You know, when he reaches over to Mark or something like that, they, they don't have a clue what's coming. But he's not just trying to make them feel good about themselves. No, he's saying, a little while you'll suffer. And you say, for a little while... Your own secret. I've been going through this hardship for years. What do you mean, a little while? But this is what Peter means. Even a lifetime of suffering is a little while in comparison to eternity. And this is the scale that he keeps putting before us. You know, we we're all we're zoomed in like on Google Earth. We're zoomed in on our little our little house and our little situation. And and Peter keeps pulling us back out and seeing the larger perspective. And there's this there's eternity. 
There's this eternal reward. There's this, there's, 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 there's this unfading inheritance. And you will you be humbled now. You will be exalted later. There's glory to be revealed when Christ returns. And so he keeps pulling us back. And so he says, a little while. So we put the trial in perspective. Second, we put God in perspective. What does this text say? He is the God of all grace. He's not the God of a little grace. He's not the God who just kind of dishes out a little doses of grace when we, when we really need He's not the God of a whole lot of grace. He's the God of all grace. He's, his grace is as vast as the ocean. It's, it's limitless. It never, never runs out. It's, he's the God of all grace. And, and the idea of all here, it's, it's varied. It's of every kind of grace. Are you, any kind of grace you need, He has it. Are you confused? There's grace for that. Are, are you discouraged? He has grace for you. Are you upset? He has grace for you. Are you angry? He has grace for you. Are you racked with guilt? He has grace for you. Are you in conflict with somebody? He has grace for you. Are, are you alone and, or lonely? He has grace for you. You feel like giving up? There's grace for you. Do you, do you. do you feel like the world has turned against you? He has grace for you. Whatever kind of grace you need, He has unlimited supply. He's the God of all grace. We need this perspective, especially in trials, because we can, we can think that God is kind of, kind of tight with grace. That, that He's reluctantly gracious, and, and just selectively... And in small amounts, Peter says, no, you suffer for a little while, but the God of all grace will work for your behalf, on your behalf. So we've got to put God in perspective, His grace. And, and to put God in perspective, we need to remember, as we see this doxology in verse 11, that, that He is the God of dominion and power forever and ever. He has all authority. He's never met a worthy opponent, and He never will. He is able to save us from eternal destruction, so He is able to help us in times of trouble. He, is a, he has dominion forever and ever. Nothing can thwart His plans. Nothing can ever separate us from His love and care. He has all power, all authority. So we, we have to put God in perspective. We, in times of trial, we have to rehearse in our, in our minds and in our hearts the enormity of God's, of God's grace and the extent of His power. It's eternal, it's forever, and it's unrivaled. Another thing we need to put in perspective is God's calling. He says, God, the God of all grace, He's called you. We didn't come to Him by our own strength or our efforts. He didn't, we didn't take the initiative. God called us to Himself. And He didn't call us to condemn us. Look at the text. He called us to what bring us to His eternal glory in Christ. We will live in His presence forever, for all eternity. He's called us. And then last, we, we put God's purpose for trials in perspective. <coughs> he Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God uses trials purposefully in our lives. I know we've talked a lot about this already in this letter. And so what is he doing by this? Reminding them of this thing that he said over and over to them. He's saying you can trust God. You can trust God for stability in the midst of trials. Trust Him. There's one more directive that, 
that I, I see Peter giving us, and it's sort of in a in an um, kind of not a, as a direct way in these last verses as he closes out this letter, verses 12 to 14. But last thing, how do we press on together with living hope when our when our lives are full of trouble? I, I say it this way: as we we <coughs> excuse me, we must stand firm together in God's true grace. Stand firm together in God's true grace. Look at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. One of the things this, I, I think, tells us here is, it, it, and this is what I'm saying, we must stand together in God's true grace. It, we don't suffer alone. I know you say, yes, I, I am. I, I'm suffering and it's, I, I'm alone in time and space. That I'm sitting on the corner of my bed at night and I'm there by myself alone. But you are not alone. <laughs> You are ultimately not alone. That, that because you are in Christ and you are a member of Christ's body, you are not alone. And so this is a way of reminding us that these last verses are just overflowing with these warm relationships and reminders of the fact that the church is interconnected, even across geographic boundaries. And so Peter commends his, his brother Silvanus, or Silas, this is the, his, probably his secretary, who was the one that actually penned the letter as Peter you know, dictated it under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's probably the one who carried the letter to these churches that he mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 1. And so, but he, he says, oh, Silvanus, he's a faithful brother. He's a faithful brother. He had served with Paul on his second missionary journey. He was, he was there in that Philippian jail with Paul when they were singing hymns at midnight and, you know, oozing wounds from his back of just being beat, uh, beat repeatedly by those, by those authorities, and there he is singing songs of praise to the Lord with Paul. He, 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 was, he was no stranger to persecution, but here he is faithfully serving Peter. He, and what an encouragement it is when we're going through trials to, to have a faithful brother or a faithful sister like Silas was to, to Peter. He sends his greetings then from, from she who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen. We talked about this way at the beginning. Most likely this refers to the church in Rome. This is kind of a cryptic way of, of, of referencing uh, that church, kind of code name, calling it, uh, speaking of Babylon as being Rome. But, but these believers there in, in Rome, they were facing intense, escalating persecution, probably more so than even Peter's recipients of this letter, and so, what is he saying, though? And this is, I think, the great encouragement. Right there, in ground zero of, of evil, Rome, this was, in that time, was just seen as the epicenter of evil through the lens of the eyes of Christian. Right there, God planted this church. He took the gospel, he got the gospel there, he has his people, they're meeting, they're persecuted, they're afflicted, but his people are there. He said, I have, I have my people in Babylon, and they greet you. 
And they know what you're going through. And and that church in Rome is linked with these other churches who are scattered and these believers who are scattered across Asia. And he says, hey, they greet you. What an encouragement. And then there's Mark. Peter calls him his son. That's not that he's his physical son by birth or something like that. But he's, he had become like a son as they served Christ together. He was, he was the protege of Peter, basically. Peter mentored Mark in ministry. And, and so you remember maybe the story of Mark. He was, he was afraid of persecution. And they're out on these missionary journeys from Peter and Paul. And, 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 and so he, he deserted Paul and Barnabas and because he was afraid. He, this was years earlier, but then he grew up into this faithful man, faithful man, ready to endure hardship for the gospel. And so Mark greets him, and 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 then he concludes. Peter concludes. He includes by encouraging the church to give this kind of customary kiss of love, and greet one another with a kiss. Uh, this was a warm greeting, a kiss on the cheek. It was men to men, women to women, that kind of thing. And I, it's not. I realize that's not practiced in our own culture, and I'm not saying that. In order to obey this, we have to, you know, start kissing each other or something like that. It is practiced by many believers in cultures today, but I think the ap- application is that we must genuinely greet one another and show expressions of love to one another in the church. There ought to be a whole lot more kissing or greeting going on in the church. This is to be a community of beautiful, expressive love. Um, you think about, again, don't forget the context. Here he's writing to these beleaguered, scattered, suffering, suffering minority in this hostile culture. Life is hard in a fallen world in general, but life is especially hard when you're being persecuted and you have the enemy, the devil, who's, who's just at your heels and is attacking you. So life is hard. Fiery trials are hard. Rejection is hard. Mockery is hard. Opposition is hard. And we, and we must have love for one another as we come together and struggle uh, with this hardship. This is not a, just a little kind of icing on top. This is critical for our endurance and hope. Love for one another. There are ways we can, quote, kiss one another with this kind of love. I mean, it could be something as simple as in the fellowship hall afterwards. When we go over and have a cup of coffee, you, you look somebody in the eye and you grab their hand and say, Brother, uh, you, 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 you've, you know this person and you, you acknowledge some evidence of the Lord's grace in your life. I've seen the Lord work in your life in this way. I don't know if you even realize it, but I noticed the way you interacted and you pursued this guest that was here and, and, and talked with them and welcomed them. And I just want to thank you and I praise God for His work in your life. That's, that's a way to, to do this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's pulling aside and it's sending a text. It's, it's, it's an email. It's, it's saying, how can I pray for you? How can I shoulder the burden that you're carrying right now and, and take this to the Lord in prayer for you this week? This kind of stuff. If that's that, think about it. If, if we just, if we all did that a couple of times every Sunday when we come together, and then a few times throughout the week, what a what a marked difference that will make. I know some of I'm saying some of you do this already, and I say excel still more, and may your tribe increase here. But this is this ought to be normal for us. I was kissed a few times yesterday by some of you men. Uh, and and I was thinking about that, and, and a text message that I received, just letting them know they're praying for us, and 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 asking, saying we'll do anything we can do to help you. Uh, it was a brother who 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 offered help in a very tangible way 
that I needed and insisted that he help me in this, in this thing. It was an encouragement. We met with small group leaders yesterday and to hear the Lord's work in these groups. These are, these are, these are testimonies of God's grace and these are just ways in which we bless and express love to one another in the church. And this is so essential. This is not extra. This is not bonus. It's not nice little add-ons. This is, this is how we endure with hope, brothers and sisters, in a hard world. But we can be so busy we can be so preoccupied and we can be so formal and distant and uncaring. And so we, 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 we can't, we've, we've got to move towards one another in this kind of love. This is a gathering of needy people. We, we, that, this is a, we're beaten up by the struggle of life. We walk in here, we limp in here, we weep our way into this place every week as the Lord has called us to gather together as a church and there's this opportunity to love. Are you taking advantage of this? Are we taking advantage of these opportunities to love one another and to greet one another in this way? And then last, he extends peace to them, to to all who are in Christ. Peace that he's talking about, the shalom, it's it's well being. It's not it's not in their it's not found their peace is not found in their ability to kind of cobble together enough control so that they can handle their own circumstances. That's not it. It's not shalom and in, in, in our righteousness, it's not rest in our success. It's because because there will be moments in your lives and in our lives together as a church when we have none of those things. We don't have the righteousness, we don't have the success, we don't have the, the wherewithal to keep going. But, but it's rest in the presence and the power and the person and the peace of Jesus Christ. It's His peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, this is where I want to come back and end here. I realize I'm taking this out of order. But he says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We must stand firm together in God's grace. So he's saying, all that I've written has been to show you that you are objects of God's awesome grace. I've, I've explained to you the grace of God. The, the entire Christian life is one of grace. Every day, in every area of life, in every moment, in every relationship, it's grace. That's what he's saying to them. But what do we do? We're tempted to, to move beyond grace. We sing about grace. We, we, we memorize passages about grace. But is grace, is the grace the thing that, we, that dominates our lives and that we, we plant our feet down in and we stand upon? Or do we move beyond it? We think there's, there's more than grace. Grace is for beginners. We go beyond that. Peter says, no, stand firm in it always. Don't go beyond it. Brothers and sisters, there, there's hope for us. There is living hope. Hope that never dies. How do, we, how do we press on in living hope as a church, even when we suffer? Peter says we've we got to know our place. We've got to, we've got to place our cares into God's loving hands. We take life seriously. We resist the devil no matter what. We believe that the work of grace will be accomplished in our lives. And we stand firm with God's people in His grace. We can know hope that lives no matter what the Lord takes us through. 
We can have rest in our hearts. We can have joy and courage no matter what circumstances we're facing. We can sleep at night even when there are painful things going on in our lives. Our hope is not in our ability to control things and to manage our lives. We don't just need to get better at that. It's not in our power. It's not in our righteousness. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our strength. Our hope is in one place in Christ. The one to whom belongs dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are that dominion belongs to You. Thank You that we don't have to worry about our own control and our own power and our own strength. We don't have to panic when, when some circumstance just pushes us beyond the limits of our own wisdom, beyond the bounds of our ability to think things through and to control our circumstances. Lord, because we know that You, you are in us and You are with us and You are for us. Help us to be a church at rest in You. Standing, um, uh, resting, uh, excuse me, casting our anxieties upon You, Lord. Resisting the, the murmurings of our accuser, calling into question Your care and Your power. Help us to be a church that's trusting Your transforming grace in our lives. Standing firm together with one another in Your grace every day in every situation we face. Thank you that our hope is alive in Christ. And it's in that name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.